Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. This is Tom Salemi, your host. We're going to focus on current events for this podcast. How can we not? Uh, Donald Trump won the election last week, uh, surprised some, didn't surprise others, but it certainly will change the direction of, uh, of this country. And uh, we ask uh, two, two great resources and two, two folks who I'm very fortunate to, fortunate to be working with on a regular basis. Uh, Rich Kirkner, who's our contributing editor at OIS, and uh, Michael Lackman, who's the principal of IQ Research. Both have done extensive writing about ophthalmology and about medtech and pharma. And uh, they do a lot of work for us here at OIS, too, and, and we're very fortunate to have their insights. So today we, we talked to them about what the impact of a Donald Trump presidency might be. Rich Kirkner actually did a great write-up uh, for the Ion Innovation Newsletter. If you don't get it, go to OIS.net, uh, give us your email, and we will send you the, email, the newsletter each week, the Ion Innovation Newsletter each week, which will include uh, our own write-ups by Rich and other uh, very talented folks podcasts like this one and video content from our OIS events. Uh, it's really simple. Just go to OIS.net and give us your email address and we'll send that out to you. But Rich covered a few different areas uh, that uh, that a Trump administration could impact, including pricing and the FDA and uh, repatri- repatriation of, uh, of tax funds. So in this podcast, we hit upon those three points that Rich raised in the report, but we also talked to Michael who, in addition to uh, running IQ Research and doing great work for the ophthalmology industry, also manages our OIS Index, which we launched last month. We did a podcast about that last month, and Michael uh, presented at OIS and AO, and talked to him about the impact that Donald Trump had on our OIS Index. So we're going to get into that, into the impact of ACA, into a lot of other issues and questions as to what uh, the Trump administration means for ophthalmology. So I hope you enjoy this little roundtable discussion. All right, well, Mike Lackman and Rich Kirkner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom, for having us. Uh, it's it's going to be hard for us, I think, to pinpoint exactly what the impact of uh, Donald Trump's uh, election to the presidency has on ophthalmology, but clearly it's going to have broader impacts on uh, on healthcare overall. And uh, one of the the larger thing that's been talked about, of course, is what may happen at ACA. And I think we had our Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit conference in Boston uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we were uh, Really uh, grateful to have David Blumenthal, who, of course, was in charge of healthcare IT or so for the federal government during the early part of the Obama administration. He's now with the Commonwealth Fund. And we also had Jonathan Gruber, one of the architects of ACA, uh, there as well. And uh, there was a great deal of uncertainty. David Blumenthal was asked about what might happen uh, if either candidate won, because this was prior to the election. And I think everyone in the place had a feeling that Hillary Clinton would be winning. That obviously didn't happen. But there was a, a question as to what might happen with either administration taking uh, taking over. And he had largely said that there weren't a lot of details of what Donald Trump might do uh, in, a, in a Trump administration to ACA. There was stuff on a website. They tried to get some clarity on that, uh, but the Trump campaign never really got back to him, whereas the Clinton campaign was more informative. So they were uh, unable to really to build a model as to what the impact of a Trump administration might be on uh, on healthcare. So I don't know if that was a 
a lack of detail that they had for a plan or just a lack of responsiveness to questions about their plan. Jonathan Gruber was more specific. Of course, he, he helped craft ACA. He's been a defender of it. Uh, he insisted it was a success, saying it ensured 27 million, it ensured 20 million rather uh, Americans, whereas they were shooting for 27 million and would have gotten there if certain states had accepted the Medicaid provision where the federal government would have helped pay for health care of, of uh, residents within those states. Uh, and he, but he, he overall said that there wasn't going to be a grand political solution to this, that it was going to be sort of incremental improvements and that ACA is not going away. Trump will change uh, some minor things around the edges, he said. He'll declare it dead and then say Obamacare is now Trump care, but it's going to essentially be the same thing. I, I know we're early on and where we are, and I know we're all sort of guessing here, but what, is that sort of a feeling that you folks are getting as well um, as to where we're going with healthcare? Do you get a sense from the folks you talk to that there are going to be wholesale changes that we need to prepare for? Or uh, is it just sort of, are we still in the too soon to tell sort of stage? Mike, have you had conversations with people about this? Um, not specifically. I would, I would agree that we're probably in the, in the too soon to tell phase. And my personal impression is that the changes will be more incremental than, than drastic, even though, as you said, they may be, they may be sold as drastic um, for, for political purposes, but, but may end up being more, uh, more gradual. Uh, I, one, one example of that is, is you know, even when you talk about uh, focus on on drug prices, you know, I think a lot of people were worried before the election that a Clinton administration would have a big focus on on drug prices, and that's probably one of the reasons why healthcare stocks have rallied so much since the election. Um, that said, you know, I, I think uh, you know anyone that thinks that that drug prices are completely off the radar screen are are probably a bit misguided at this point. So I think we're talking about shades of gray here. Yeah, for sure. And and Rich, I want to get into you for a second because you, you wrote a great piece for the I Innovation newsletter this week that we'll sort of recap. But while we're talking about stock prices, Mike, you're the manager of our new OIS uh, index. You're sort of tracking the performance of of the ophthalmology of, uh, I forget the total number, but of several opt- of several ophthalmology companies. How did the index perform? Uh, what What is the total number that you're tracking now? And how did the index perform before, uh, immediately after the election, rather? And how has it performed since? Um, so uh, there are 29 ophthalmology stocks, both biopharma and device. It's about two-thirds biopharma at this point, one-third device. And uh, we, we launched the index on October 1st with an initial valuation set at uh, 1,000. And when we last uh, updated our uh, readers and listeners, on November 1st, uh, the, the index was down in, in one month from 1,000 down to 876, so a pretty significant drop. And then in the, in the following week leading up to the election, the index was down another 2.5% to 854 as of election day. Uh, but in the week since, uh, the, the OIS index has come roaring back uh, up nearly 13% in the past week to uh, 962, so so approaching that initial 1,000 valuation that we started on October 1st. Um, and if you look at, at what other healthcare stocks have done since the election, uh, the OIS index has outperformed uh, a couple of the other major in- indices. Uh, the, the overall U.S. stock market is up about 2.5% since the election, but the NASDAQ biotech index is up a little more than 11%. And interesting, interestingly, the medical device index is, is down a couple of percent since the election, um, 
but I wouldn't read too much into that. If you look at the what happened over the year prior to the election, uh, biotech stocks in the year prior were down about 21%. Uh, the OIS index was down about 14%. And during that same period of time, medical devices were actually up 13%. So maybe a little bit of a give back or, or less of a post-election rally for medical devices. Interesting. And Rich, in, in the article I referenced earlier, and, and people can get it, uh, see it on their Ion Innovation newsletter, you uh, you hit upon the, the pricing and transparency pressures, and they seem to be easing up for now, not only the Trump election, but the, the, the failure of Proposition 61 to pass in, in California. Uh, what is your your sense? This is, it's Again, it's really too soon to say what the outcome might be, but in the conversation you've had, and I know you you uh, read through several of the analyst reports that came out following the election. There was a whole slew of them uh, sort of gauging or, or set, giving a, an idea of what might happen going forward. What was your takeaway in regards to, to pricing and transparency? And then we can hit upon some of the other issues you raised in the article as well. Well, I think um, I, I go back to what Mike said. that it, it may be too early to tell, and we, we are in sort of a gray area here. With the defeat of Proposition 61, obviously, uh, pharma breathed a sigh of relief with that. But I, I think where that, with the election of Trump and the Republicans continuing to keep control of Congress, it, it seems that any federal effort on greater price transparency and price controls on pharma is probably off the table. That said, Trump, when he campaigned, did say he thought Medicare should be able to negotiate drug prices. Um, he, yeah, and and he also he said a lot of things in the campaign, including he talked about getting to the ACA, having coverage for pre-existing conditions, which he reiterated the other night on sixty Minutes. However, I, I think where we're in this gray area is which which of these things is he really going to push on and which are not going to make the agenda in the first hundred days. Drug, giving Medicare the authority to negotiate drug prices is a tough sell on both sides of the aisle in Congress. So I, I think we can say pretty much on the federal level, that's probably off the table. On the state level, Proposition 61, I, I've talked to a number of people about this. They said it was just a bad ballot initiative. It was just worded poorly. And um, uh, uh, Adams Dudley, who was with the University of California at San Francisco and who followed this closely, said to me that if a year or two from now there hasn't been any progress made on drug pricing and we keep getting hit with stories like the EpiPen um, and Martin Shkreli and uh, personalities like that, and drug pricing is at the top of, of mind of the public, say, by the midterm elections in 2018, he said to me, a bad, badly worded ballot measure like that could pass. So it's not, uh, pharma's breathing a sigh of relief, but I think 
they may have to look at what the states are going to do. Ohio has a ballot proposition in uh, 2017, next November, very similar to California's, which was that the state would pay no more for drugs for its various programs, uh, drugs for prisoners, drugs for social service programs, uh, drugs for Medicaid, would pay no more for those drugs than the list price of the Department of Veterans Affairs does. Uh, That's interesting. It would, be fa- it would be fascinating if that were to pass in Ohio and, and after having failed in California, given that there's two completely different types of states. And the, and the drug company spent $109 million in California to defeat it. And it won, um, it was defeated by a vote of 50, 54 to 46, which, as uh, Adams uh, Dudley said to me, that's pretty close when you consider that the proponents for the bill were, for the proposition, were outspent five to one. Do you get a sense that ophthalmology, and, and both of you can kind of chime in on this one, is any more or less ex, uh, exposed to this sort of uh, uh, pressure on pricing? I mean, so much of what we do, especially with the device side, is, is, is private pay and, and premium channel. But uh, there's obviously a lot in the, in the reimburse side as well. Are we, is ophthalmology more or less exposed to this kind of pressure than other specialties? I don't know that I have a whole lot to say on that. I, I think the private pay uh, part of the market uh, – does act as a buffer, uh, and and when you look at a lot of of the sort of bread and butter um, procedures like cataract surgery, I don't think there are a lot of big ticket items um, involved there. You know where where you're looking at at some of the newer medications in the retinal field, uh, there there could be some resulting price pressure. Um, so that might be one area, uh, but I don't know that ophthalmology really stands out as as particularly exposed from a drug pricing standpoint. Enrich, I know this is a special uh, focus of yours. Uh, what do you think? Well, the the price of anti VEGF drugs has drawn a lot of attention from uh, from Medicare and the press. Um, however, these drugs work. They work really well. They provide a very high quality of life. Uh, they they provide value is is what they provide so i i i think because of that and because ophthalmologists are aware of the cost of these drugs and they have they they have adopted approaches to using them such as treat and extend for for amd and uh, uh diabetic macular edema instead of you know, they are really trying, instead of just using the drugs every four weeks per label, they, they are really trying to extend it out to, 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 um, to, to make the most with the least of, of, uh, drug. So, um, I, I mean, there. I guess a, a year or two ago, when Medicare came out with its list of top reimbursed physicians, and uh, there were a lot of ophthalmologists up at the top of the list because of anti-VEGF drugs, uh, 
that that brought some scrutiny, but but again, like I said, uh, ophthalmologist, uh, retina specialist specifically, have been very good about maximizing the value um, of those drugs. And then uh, another, uh, we're going to work up from the list. This is actually number number two on your list, and we'll get to number one in a second. Um, but changes at the FDA could lead to a friendly regulatory climate for drug and device makers. It's interesting to hear after the the the, the positive summer we've had in, in ophthalmology that things might get even even friendlier. And it hadn't really occurred to me that Robert Califf, who just who just went through a, a very uh, rigorous uh, uh, review before getting appointed, might uh, might get replaced uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, what's your what's the feeling regarding the FDA? I mean, the the, the, the the I think the sentiments of the reviewers. You know, I don't know if that'll be impacted directly by the. A change in commissioner, but uh, but certainly the, the commissioner can set the tone for the agency. But is it likely that uh, Robert Califf would be replaced? Well, as as best as I can tell, that's um, that, that's what analysts are are seeing, and that's what the the media that covers the FDA is seeing. Obviously, you know, to my knowledge, he's a uh, administration appointee, and. Uh, those people typically get replaced when a new administration comes in. So uh, when when I saw that in in the days after the election about the FDA becoming um, friendlier to in, in the review process, that that kind of surprised me. That was something I really didn't think about, and that may be something that. Uh, f- Pharma outside of ophthalmology is keenly aware of. As you said, you know, it, it seems like ophthalmology's had a pretty good run in the past um, per, past few months, anyway. So, uh, but that's I, I mean that's certainly worth watching to see where what direction the FDA takes in a new administration. Yeah, I, I would say that. That, you know, aside from specifics and, you know, specifics that would relate to actual policy or specifics that would relate to ophthalmology, I think there is a broad perception that that uh, a Republican administration could lead to a less restrictive FDA, uh, possibly with respect to product approvals. Uh, that said, I don't think there's a lot of meat on the bone, and I haven't read anything yet that that really goes beyond that perception and starts getting into specifics of, of how that might play out. So I think we may be seeing, and you know, I, I would put that uh, on the list of the sort of top four or five reasons why there was this relief rally in, in, um, in biopharma stocks in particular uh, after, after the ex- election was just this broad perception that, that Republican equals less regulation and that could, that could spill over to the FDA. Yeah, in this case, of course, this this Republican win has a much more of a populist feel to it. So you don't know how it could go either way. But I think we're I think the tax policy, and that's the the third point that you hit upon, Rich, and you can both sort of address this. Any changes in tax policy that would encourage repatri- repatriation of of money to be brought back into the U.S. could be used for M and A and other other uh, uh, other uh, uh, applications uh, would be would be huge for the sector. I mean, I think all around it would be would be beneficial for for strategics it would be beneficial for 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 investors um what's your what's your feeling about that rich is this is this really kind of the source of the buoyancy that we might feel in ophthalmology this money coming back into the sector 
Well, I, I think it, it certainly contributes to it. Um, the figures I saw is that, um, you know, something something o- over $30 billion um, that uh, um, Amgen has out there. Um, overseas and Gilead has 20 billion and they're they're just two companies now they're they're not big players in ophthalmology uh, yet if they're able to bring back bring all that money back into the United States who knows they could be but certainly big players like Merck and, and Abby B and Pfizer have a lot of money stored overseas as well and they they have been uh, considerable players in ophthalmology. So uh, yes, I, I think that has a good bit to do with the the rally in uh, pharma and, and biotech stocks. Um, also, in addition to as, as Mike uh, mentioned earlier, the the general sense that the regulatory environment. Uh, Usually is is friendlier under Republican administrations than than Democratic administrations. So, mm-hmm. and Mike, from the, the index point of view, or just from your general point of view, do you what what impact do you see this repatriation of money having on ophthalmology? Well, I would just echo what what Rich said. I, th- I think anytime you you bring that much uh, investable money back into uh, the U.S., uh, where it can be used to fund M&A activity, which not only helps the big companies, but but helps the companies down down at the uh, the earlier stages of development. The other thing, from a tax standpoint, which which uh, hasn't gotten quite as much discussion and play as as the uh, repatriation of foreign profits, is is I think there's a general feeling that under a Republican administration, it's more likely than before that the 2.3 percent medical device tax will be permanently repealed and and uh, you know having said that we haven't seen a rally in in medical device stocks uh, since the election it's been you know flat to maybe even down a couple of percent um but you know there are a lot of moving parts um uh, that that affect you know movements in stock prices and as i pointed out uh, medical device stocks weren't nearly as negatively impact go- impacted going into the election as biopharma stocks were um so that would be the other the other thing to look for from a from a taxation standpoint. And I, I had also, uh, I think one thing in particular that, that I was curious about was whether this could impact inversion deals, whether the Treasury would re- repeal the directive that uh, sort of scuttled the, the Pfizer-Allegan deal. But uh, I had emailed with Leah Abraham from City, who's been on the podcast before, and she sent me her report suggesting that the realignment of, of the taxes will actually make those deals even less attractive to do. So I, I don't think it's likely that we'll see a a renewal of those kind of inversion deals or, or Pfizer Allergan in particular, which is a, probably no surprise to anybody. But uh, certainly lots to, to track going on. Anything particularly you guys are going to be paying attention uh, in the near future? Or uh, is, this a, is this pretty much all we know at this point? It's certainly an exciting and interesting time. Mike, any thoughts? Yeah, well, I think just keeping an eye on some of the things that we've talked about to, to uh, see where the repeal and replace process on Ob- Obamacare leads, you know, anytime you talk about about uh, making changes to uh, to broad healthcare policy like that, one of the things that you look at is is would the 
if the result is that fewer lives are covered and fewer people are insured, the question then becomes, could that have a negative impact on procedure volumes um, or on, on diagnostic volumes or whatever volume of, of, of um, you know, product or procedure you're looking at? And I, I think that's always a question, but I think the fact that in this repeal and repra- replace process, there's going to be a lot of focus on making sure that you know tens of millions of americans who are insured now um making sure that they don't lose their insurance and and i know that uh even even uh covering pre-existing conditions and allowing uh, people up to age 26 to stay on their parents plan i think the the feeling is that in the move to repeal or replace obamacare the goal is going to be to try not to drop people off the rolls of of the insured so uh, I don't. I don't expect there to be a, a negative fallout from from that side of it. Yeah, the AMA came up pretty forcefully yesterday. Uh, Andrew German, doctor, the president of the AMA, said uh, that while they're uh, they're open to revisions to uh, to coverage, they said a core principle of the AMA is that any new reform proposal should not cause individuals currently covered to become uninsured. So there's going to be a lot of pushback on that. I think from a lot of different directions. Rich, what are you what uh, what are you looking for going forward? Well, with the with the ACA uh, repeal and or replace effort, it it will be interesting to see how the various stakeholders that are affected, uh, hospitals and insurance companies specifically, um, take to Capitol Hill to defend their turf um, in that. In that legislation, I, I think too that the, uh, agreeing with Mike here, the prospect of 20 million people um, losing insurance is is something that that nobody wants to stomach. And now, and now that the uh, Republicans ha- do have control of uh, both houses of Congress and the White House, a- any anything that goes wrong there. Is going to come back at them in the and in, in the 2018 midterm elections, and they they are already looking looking forward to that, and um, be, because typically in a mid in the midterm elections, the party that's in power loses a, a lot of a lot of seats in congressional races, and um, I, I think for them to to go forward with just a, a simple repeal, take 20 people, 20 million people off of the insurance rolls is going to be something that their members will find very politically, um, politically difficult to do, especially if they're keeping an eye on those uh, 2018 midterm elections. I agree. It's a great point. All right. Well, this is uh, this has been a great overview, and uh, with a lot of questions uh, that will be answered over the coming months and, and years. And uh, appreciate your taking a few minutes to uh, to share your early insights. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Well, that's a wrap, Mike and Rich. Thanks for taking the time today. There's so much to think about, and uh, while we don't have answers for every question, it certainly was beneficial for me, at least to understand uh, what we need to be watching for going forward. 
lots of great opportunities for ophthalmology, lots of uh, potential pitfalls, but overall, uh, things to be seem to be headed in, uh, in an interesting and, and possibly positive direction. So thanks again, guys, for taking the time today. Thank you, podcast listeners, for joining us for this conversation. I hope it was, uh, it was as helpful to you as it was for me. And uh, if it was and you want to return the favor, please uh, do go to uh, iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Give us a rating. Uh, we'd love to know how we're doing. Offer some comments. Those help us a lot. And, uh, and again, of course, always keep listening to the OIS podcast. Subscribe if you're not a subscriber. And uh, we would uh, be happy to send you great content like this each week and also don't forget to subscribe to the ion innovation newsletter go to ois.net just give us your email and uh, you'll get all this stuff sent directly to your inbox so thanks again for tuning in and tune in next week for another tale of innovation